Chapter Twenty One, Part C, of Travels in West Africa. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Travels in West Africa, by Mary H. Kingsley. Chapter Twenty One, Part C. Trade and Labor in West Africa. In a subsequent letter, Mr. Robertson observed that he had been assisted in making the above analysis by an expert in the chemistry of alcohols, who said that the present sample differed in no material particulars from, and was neither more nor less deleterious to health than gin, purchased in different parts of London and submitted to analysis. In addition to this analysis, I have also one of Messrs. Peter's gin, equally satisfactory and as van hoytema and peters are the two great suppliers of the gin that goes to west africa i think the above is an answer to the poison statements and should be sufficient evidence against it for all people who are not themselves absolute teetotalers absolute teetotalers are definite-minded people and one respects them more than one does those who do not hold with teetotalism for themselves, but think it is a good thing for other people. And, moreover, it is of no use arguing with them, because they say all alcohol is poison, and won't appreciate any evidence to the contrary, so palaver done set, but a large majority of those who attack, or believe in the rectitude of the attack on, the African liquor traffic are not teetotalers, and so should be capable of forming a just opinion. My personal knowledge of the district where most of the liquor goes in, the oil rivers, has been gained in Duke Town, Old Calabar. I have been there four separate times, and last year stayed there continuously for some months, during a period in which, if Duke Town had felt inclined to go on the bust, it certainly could have done so, for the police and most of the government officials were away at Brass, in consequence of the Akasa Palver, and those few who were left behind and the white traders were down with an epidemic of malarial typhoid. But Duke Town did nothing of the kind. I used to be down in the heart of the town, at Ayamba's market by Prince Archibong's house, night after night alone, watching the devil-makings that were going on there, and the amount of drunkenness I saw was exceedingly small. I did the same thing at the adjacent town of Kwa, my knowledge of Bonnie, Bell, and Aqua Towns, Libreville, Lembarene, Cabinda, Boma, Banana, Nkoi, Loanda, etc., is extensive and peculiar, and I have spent hours in them when the whole of the missionary and government people have been safe in their distant houses, so had the evils of the liquor traffic been anything like half what it is made out to be, I must have come across it in appalling forms, and I have not. The figures of the case I will not here quote, because they are easily obtained from government reports by any one interested in the matter. I regard their value as being small, unless combined with a knowledge of the west coast trade. The liquor goes in at a few ports on the west coast, and into the hands of those tribes who act as middlemen between the white trader and the interior trade stuff-producing tribes, and is thereby diffused over an enormous extent of thickly inhabited country. We English are directly in touch with none of the interior trade, save in the territory of the Royal Niger Company, 
and the delta tribes with whom we deal in the oil river subsist on this trade between the interior and the coast and they prefer to use spirits as a buying medium because they get the highest percentage of profit from it and the lowest percentage of loss by damage when dealing with it it does not get spoilt by damp like tobacco and cloth do indeed in addition to the amount of moisture supplied by their reeking climate they superadd a large quantity of river water to the spirit before it leaves their hands while with the other articles of trade it is one perpetual grind to keep them free from moisture and mildew in their coast towns there are immense stories of gin in cases which they would as soon think of drinking themselves as we if we were butchers would think of eating up the stock in the shop a certain percentage of spirits is consumed in the delta and if spirits are wanted anywhere they are wanted in the niger delta region and about one-eighth part of that used here is for fetish worship poured out on the ground and mixed with other things to hang in bottles over fish traps and so on to make residences for guardian spirits who are expected to come and take up their abode in them spirits to the spirits on the sweets to the sweet principle is universal in west africa and those photographs you are often shown of dead chiefs graves with bottles on them merely demonstrate that the deceased was taking down with him a little liquor for his own use in the underworld which he holds to be possessed of a chilly and damp climate and a little over to give a propitiatory peg to one of the ruling authorities there or any old friend he may come across in the elysian fields this is possibly a misguided heathen thing of him to do and it is generally held in european circles that the underworld such an individual as he will go to is neither damp nor chilly but granting this no one can contest but that the world he spends his life herein is damp and that the natives of the niger delta live in a saturated forest swamp region that reeks with malaria their damp mud-walled houses frequently flooded they f themselves spend the greater part of their time dabbling about in the stinking mangrove swamps and then for five months in the year they are wrapped in the almost continuous torrential downpour of the west african wet season followed in the delta by the so-called dry season with its thick morning and evening mists and the air rarely above dew point then their food is of poor quality and insufficient quantity and in districts near the coast noticeably deficient in meat of any kind i think the desire for spirits and tobacco given these conditions is quite reasonable and that when they are taken in moderation as they usually are they are anything but deleterious the african himself has not a shadow of a doubt on the point and some form of alcohol he will have when he cannot get white man's spirit min makara as he calls it in calabar he takes black man's spirit minific this is palm wine and although it has escaped the abuse heaped on rum and gin it is worse for the native than either of the others for he has to drink a disgusting quantity of it because from the palm wine he does not get the stimulating effect quickly as from gin or rum and the enormous quantity consumed at one sitting will distribute its effects over a week you can always tell whether a native has had a glass too much rum or half a gallon or so too much palm wine the first he soon recovers from 
while the palm wine keeps him a disgusting nuisance for days, and the constitutional effects of it are worse, for it produces a definite type of renal disease which, if it does not cut short the life of the sufferer in a paroxysm, kills him gradually with dropsy. There is another native drink which works a bitter woe on the African in the form of intoxication, combined with a brilliant bilious attack. It is made from honey flavored with a bark of a certain tree, and as it is very popular, I had better not spread it further by giving the recipe. The imported gin keeps the African off these abominations which he has to derange his internal works with before he gets the stimulus that enables him to resist this vile climate. Particularly will it keep him from his worst intoxicant, liamba, cannabis sativa, a plant which grows wild on the southwest coast and on the west for all I know, as well as the African or bowstring hemp, sansevieria, quiniensis, the plant that produces the liamba is a nettle-like plant growing six to ten feet high, and the natives collect the tops of the stems, with the seed on, in little bundles and dry them. It is evidently the seeds which are regarded by them as being the important part, although they do not collect these separately, but you hear great rows among them when buying and selling a little bundle, on the point of the seeds being shaken out. Chi, 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 says A. This is worthless. There are no seeds. I, I, says B. Never were there so many seeds in a bunch of liamba, etc. It is used smoked, like the ganja of India, not like the preparation bang, and the way the Africans in the Congo used it was a very quaint one. They would hollow out a little hole in the ground, making a little dome over it, then in went a few hemp tops, and onto them a few stones made red-hot in a fire. Then the dome was closed up, and a reed stuck through it. Then one man after another would go and drop into his lungs as much smoke as he could with one prolonged deep inspiration, and then go apart and cough in a hard, hacking, distressing way for ten minutes at a time, and then back to the reed for another pull. In addition to the worry of hearing their coughs, the liamba gives you trouble with the men, for it spoils their tempers, making them moody and fractious, and prone to quarrel with each other, and when they get an excessive dose of it their society is more terrifying than tolerable. I once came across three men who had got into this state, and a fourth man who had not but was of the party. They fought with him and broke his head, and then we proceeded on our way, one gentleman taking flying leaps at some places, climbing up trees now and again, and embedding himself in the bush alongside the path, because of the pools of moving blood on it. If they had not kept moving, he said as he sat where he fell, he could have managed it. The others, having grand times with various creatures, which, judging from their descriptions of them, I was truly thankful were not there. The men's state of mind, however, soon cleared, and I must say this was the only time I came across this liamba giving such strong effects. Usually the men just cough with that racking cough that lets you know what they have been up to, and quarrel for a short time. When, however, a whiff of liamba is taken by them in the morning before starting on a march, the effect seems to be good, enabling them to get over the ground easily and to endure a long march without being exhausted. But a small tot of rum is better for them by far, 
Many other intoxicants made from bush are known to and used by the witch-doctors. You may say, well, if it is not the polygamy and not the drink that makes the West African as useless as he now is as a developer, or a means of developing the country, what is it? In my opinion it is the sort of instruction he has received, not that this instruction is necessarily bad in itself, but bad from being unsuited to the sort of man to whom it has been given. It has the tendency to develop his emotionalism, his sloth, and his vanity, and it has no tendency to develop those parts of his character which are in a rudimentary state and much wanted, thereby throwing the whole character of the man out of gear. The great inferiority of the African to the European lies in the matter of mechanical idea. I own I regard not only the African but all colored races as inferior, inferior in kind, not in degree, to the white races, although I know it is unscientific to lump all Africans together and then generalize over them, because the difference between various tribes is very great. But nevertheless there are certain constant quantities in their character, that the tribe be what it may, that enable us to do this for practical purposes, making merely the distinction between Negroes and Bantu, and on the subject of this division I may remark that the Negro is superior to the Bantu. He is both physically and intellectually the more powerful man, and although he does not Christianize well, he does often civilize well. The native officials cited by Mr. Hodgson in his letter to the Times of January 4, 1895, as having satisfactorily carried on all the postal and the governmental printing work of the Gold Coast Colony, as well as all the subordinate custom-house officials in the Niger Coast Protectorate, in fact, I may say, all of them in the whole of the British possessions on the West Coast, are educated Negroes. I am aware that all sea captains regard this latter class as poisonous nuisances, but then every properly constituted sea captain regards custom-house officials, let their color be what it may, as poisonous nuisances anywhere. In addition to these, you will find, notably in Lagos, excellent pure-blooded negroes in European clothes and with European culture. The best men among these are lawyers, doctors, and merchants, and I have known many ladies of Africa who have risen to an equal culture level with their lords. On the West African seaboard you do not find the Bantu equally advanced, except among the Mpongwe and I am persuaded that this tribe is not pure Bantu, but of Negro origin. The educated blacks that are not in Pongwe on the Bantu coast, from Cameroons to Benguela, you will find are Negroes, who have gone down there to make money, but this class of African is the clerk class, and we are now concerned with the laborer. The African's own way of doing anything mechanical is the simplest way, not the easiest, certainly not the quickest, he has all the chuckle-headedness of that overrated creature, the ant, for his head never saves his heels. Watch a gang of boat-boys getting a surf-boat down a sandy beach. They turn it broadside on to the direction in which they wish it to go, and then turn it bodily over and over, with structure-straining bumps to the boat, and any amount of advice and recriminatory observations to each other unless, under white direction, they will not make a slip, nor will they put rollers under her. Watch again a gang of natives trying to get a log of timber down into the river from the bank, and you will see the same sort of thing. 
no idea of a lever or anything of that sort, and remember that, unless under white direction, the African has never made an even fourteenth-rate piece of cloth or pottery, or a machine, tool, picture, sculpture, and that he has never even risen to the level of picture-writing. I am aware of his ingenious devices for transmitting messages, such as the cowrie shells, strung diversely on strings, in use among the Yoruba, but even these do not equal the picture-writing of the South American Indians, nor the picture the Red Indian does on a raw elk hide. They are far and away inferior to the graphic sporting sketches left us of mammoth hunts by the prehistoric cavemen. This absence of mechanical aptitude is very interesting, though it most likely has the very simple underlying reason that the conditions under which the African has been living have been such as to make no call for a higher mechanical culture. In his native state he does not want to get heavy surfboards into the sea. His own light dugout is easily slid down. He does not want to cut down heavy timber trees and get them into the river and so on. But this state is now getting disturbed by the influx of white enterprise, and not only disturbed but destroyed, and so he must alter his ways or there will be grave trouble. But it is encouraging to remark that the African is almost as teachable and as willing to learn handicrafts as he is to assimilate other things, provided his mind has not been poisoned by fallacious ideas and the results already obtained from the crewmen and the akras are good. The akras are not such good workmen as they might be, because they are to a certain extent spoilt by getting, owing to the dearth of labor, higher wages and more toleration for indifferent bits of work than they deserve, or their work is worth, but they have not yet fallen under that deadly spell worked by so many of the white men on so many of the black. The idea that it is the correct and proper thing not to work with your own hands, but to get some underling to do all that sort of thing for you while you read and write. This false ideal formed by the native from his empirical observations of some of the white men around him has been the cause of great mischief. He sees the white man is his ruling man, rich, powerful, and honored, and so he imitates him, and goes to the mission school classes to read and write, and as soon as an African learns to read and write he turns into a clerk. Now there is no immediate use for clerks in Africa, certainly no room for further development in this line of goods. What Africa wants at present, and will want for the next two hundred years at least, are workers, planters, plantation hands, miners, and seamen, and there are no schools in Africa to teach these things or the doctrine of the nobility of labor, save the technical mission schools. Almost every mission on the coast has now a technical school just started or having collections made at home to start one. But in the majority of these crafts, such as bookbinding, printing, tailoring, etc., are being taught which are not at present wanted. Still, any technical school is better than none, and apart from lay considerations, is of great religious value to the mission indirectly, for there are many instances in mission annals of a missionary receiving great encouragement from the natives when he first starts in a district. At first the converts flock in, get baptized in batches, go to church, attend school, and adopt European clothes with an alacrity and enthusiasm that frequently turns their devoted pastor's head. But after the lapse of a few months their conduct is enough to break his heart. 
Dressing up in European clothes amuses the ladies and some of the young men for a long time, in some cases permanently, but the older men and the bolder youth soon get bored, and when an African is bored, and he easily is so, he goes utterly to the bad. It is in these places that an industrial mission would be so valuable to the spiritual cause, for by employing and amusing the largely preponderating lower faculties of the African's mind, it would give the higher faculties time to develop. I have frequently been told, when advocating technical instruction, that there are objections against it from spiritual standpoints, which, as my own views do not enable me to understand them, I will not enter into. Also, several authorities, not mission authorities alone, state with ethnologists that the African is incapable of learning except during the period of childhood. Professor A. H. Keene says, Their inherent mental inferiority, almost more marked than their physical characters, depends on physiological causes by which the intellectual faculties seem to be arrested before attaining their normal development. And further on, we must necessarily infer that the development of the negro and white proceeds on different lines, while with the latter the volume of the brain grows with the expansion of the brain pan, in the former the growth of the brain is on the contrary arrested by the premature closing of the cranial sutures and lateral pressure of the frontal bone. You will frequently meet with the statement that the negro child is as intelligent or more so than the white child but that as soon as it passes beyond childhood it makes no further mental advance. Burton says his mental development is arrested, and thenceforth he grows backwards instead of forwards. Now it is nervous work contradicting these statements, but with all due respect to the makers of them, I must do so, and I have the comfort of knowing that many men with a larger personal experience of the African than these authorities have agree with me, although at the same time we utterly disclaim holding the opinion that the African is a man and a brother. A man he is, but not of the same species, and his cranial sutures do, I agree, close early. Indeed, I have seen them almost obliterated in skulls of men who have died quite young, but I think most anthropologists are nowadays beginning to see that the immense value they a few years since set upon skull measurements and cranial capacity, etc., has been excessive, and not to have so great a bearing on the intelligence as they thought. There has been an enormous amount of material carefully collected, mainly by Frenchmen, on craniology, which is exceedingly interesting, but full of difficulty, and giving very diverse indications. Take the weights of brain given by Topinard. One anamite, 1,233 grams. Seven African Negroes, 1,238 grams. Eight African Negroes, 1,289 grams. One Hutton taught, 1,417 grams. And I think you will see for practical purposes such considerations as weight of brain or closure of sutures, etc., are negligible. And so we need not get paralyzed with respect for physiological causes. Moreover, I may remark that the top weight the Hottentot was a lady, and that M. Broca weighed one negro's brain which scaled 1,500 grams, while 105 English and Scotchmen only gave an average of 1,427. 
So I think we may make our minds easy on the safety of sticking to outside facts, and say that, after all, it does not much affect the question of capacity for industrial training in the African, if he does choose to close up the top of his head early, and that the whole attempt to make out that the African is a child form, an arrested development, is, well, not supported by facts. The very comparison between white and black children's intelligence to the disadvantage of the former is all wrong. The white child is not his inferior, he is not so quick in picking up parlor tricks, but then where are either of the children at that alongside a French poodle? What happens to the African from my observations is just what happens to the European, namely when he passes out of childhood he goes into a period of hobbledehoyhood. During this period his skull might just as well be filled inside with wool as covered outside with it. But after a time, during which he has succeeded in distracting and discouraging the white men who hoped so much of him when he was a child, his mind clears up again and goes ahead all right. It is utter rubbish to say you cannot teach an adult African, and that he grows backwards, for even without white interference he gets more and more cunning as time goes on. Does any one who knows them feel inclined to tell me that those old palm-oil chiefs have not learnt a thing or two during their lives, or that a well-matured bush-trader has not? Go down to West Africa yourself, if you doubt this, and carry on a series of experiments with them in subjects they know of, trade subjects. Try and get the best of a whole series of matured adults, male or female, and I can promise you, you will return a wiser and a poorer man, but with a joyful heart regarding the capacity of the African to grow up. Whether he does this by adding convolutions or piling on his grey matter, we will leave for the present. All that I wish to urge regarding the African at large is that he has been mismanaged of late years by the white races. The study of this question is a very interesting one, but I have no space to enter into it here in detail. In my opinion, I say my own, I beg you to remark, only when I am uttering hearsay, this mismanagement has been a by-product of the wave of hysterical emotionalism that has run through white culture, and for which I have an instinctive hatred. I have briefly pointed out the evil worked by misdirected missionary effort on the native mind, but it is not the missionary alone that is doing harm. The government does nearly as much. Whether it does this because of the fear of Exeter Hall as representing a big voting interest, or whether just from the tendency to get everything into the hands of a council or an office, to be everlastingly nagging and legislating and inspecting, matters little. The result is bad, and it fills me with the greatest admiration for my country to see how in spite of this she keeps the lead. That she will always keep it, I believe, because I believe that it is impossible that this phase of emotionalism, no, it is not hypocrisy, my French friends, it is only a sort of fit, will last, and we shall soon be back in our clear senses again, and say to the world, we do this thing because we think it is right, because we think it is best for those we do it to, and for ourselves, not because of the wickedness of war, the brotherhood of man, or any other notion bred of fear. The way in which the present ideas acting through the government do harm in Africa are many. 
English government officials have very little and very poor encouragement given them if they push inland and attempt to enlarge the sphere of influence, which their knowledge of local conditions teaches them requires enlarging, because the authorities at home are afraid other nations will say we are rapacious land-grabbers. Well, we always have been, and they will say it anyhow, and where, after all, is the harm in it? We have acted in unison with the nations who, for good sound reasons of their own, have cut down Portuguese possessions in Africa because we were afraid of being thought to support a nation who went in for slavery. I always admire a good move in a game or a brilliant bit of strategy, and that was a beauty, and on our head now lie the affairs of the Congo Free State, while France and Germany smile sweetly, knowing that these affairs will soon be such that they will be able to step in and divide the territory up between themselves without a sin on their character in the interests of humanity. The whole of that rich region which, by the name of Livingstone, Spake, Grant, Burton, and Cameroon, should now be ours. Then again, in commercial competition, our attitude seems to me very lacking in dignity. We are now just beginning to know it is a fight, and this commercial war has been going on since 1880, since, in fact, France and Germany have recovered from their war of 1870. And if we are to carry on this commercial war with any hope of success, we must abandon our, oh, that's not fair, I won't play, attitude, and above all we must have no more government restrictions on our foreign trade. In West Africa governmental restriction settles, like dew in autumn on the liquor traffic. It is a case of give a dog a bad name and hang him. Moreover, raising the import dues on liquor may bring into the government a good revenue. But it is a short-sighted policy, for the liquor is a thing there is the best market for in West Africa. The natives have no enthusiasm about cotton goods, as they seem from some accounts to have in East Central, and the supply of them they now get, and get cheap and good, is as much as they require. And if the question of the abstract morality of introducing clothes or introducing liquor to native races were fairly gone into, the results would be interesting, for clothing native races in European clothes works badly for them and kills them off. Indeed, the whole of this question of trade with the lower races is full of curious and unexpected points. Speaking at large, the introduction of European culture, governmental, religious, or mercantile, has a destructive action on all the lower races, many of them the governmental and religious sections, have stamped right out. But trade has never stamped a race out when dissociated from the other two, and it certainly has had no bad effect in tropical Africa. With regard to the liquor traffic, try and put yourself in the West African's place. Imagine, for example, that you want a pair of boots. You go into a shop, prepared to pay for them, but the man who keeps the shop says, My good friend, you must not have boots, they are immoral. You can have a tin of sardines, or a pocket handkerchief, they are much better for you. Would you take the sardines or the pocket handkerchiefs? More particularly, would you feel inclined to take them instead of your desired boots if you knew there was a shop in a neighboring street where boots are to be had? And there is a neighboring shop street to all our West Coast possessions, which is in the hands of either France or Germany. 
I do not for a moment deny that the liquor traffic requires regulation, but it requires more regulation in Europe than it does in Africa, because Europe is more given to intoxication. In Africa, all that is wanted is that the spirit sent in should be wholesome and not sold at a strength over forty-five degrees below proof. These requirements are fairly well fulfilled already on the West Coast, and I can see no reason for any further restriction or additional impost. If further restrictions in the sale of it are wanted, it is not for interior trade where the natives are not given to excess, but in the larger coast towns where there is a body of natives who are the debris of the disintegrating process of white culture. But even in those towns like Sierra Leone and Lagos, these men are a very small percentage of the population. If things are even made no worse for him than they are at present, the English trader may be trusted to hold the greater part of the trade of West Africa for the benefit of the English manufacturers if he is more heavily hampered. The English trade will die out, the English trader remain, because he is the best trader with the natives, but it will be small profit to the English manufacturers because the trader will be dealing in foreign-made stuff, as he is now in the possessions of France and Germany. English manufacturers, I may remark, have succeeded in turning out the cloth goods best suited for the African markets, but there has of late years been an increase in the quantity of other goods made by foreigners used in the West Coast trade. The imports from France and Germany and the United States to the Gold Coast for 1894, published 1896, were 217,388 pounds. The exports of 212,320 pounds. And the consular report 158 for the Gold Coast says that while the trade with the United Kingdom has increased from 1,054,336 pounds, 17 S 6 D in 1893 to 1,190,532 pounds, 1 S 3 D in 1894, or roughly 13%, the trade with foreign countries has increased upwards of 22% namely from 350,387 pounds 3s 5d to 429,708 pounds 1s 4d in the lagos consular report number 150 similar comparative statistics are not given but the increase at that place is probably greater than on the gold coast as a heavy percentage of the Lagos trade goes through the hands of two German firms, but this increase in foreign trade in our colonies seems to be even greater in other parts of Africa, for in a foreign office report from Mozambique it is stated regarding Cape Colony that while British imports show an otherwise satisfactory increase, German trade has more than trebled. There is a certain school of philanthropists in Europe who say that it is not advisable to spread white trade in Africa, that the native is provided by the bountiful earth with all that he really requires, and that therefore he should be allowed to live his simple life and not be compelled or urged to work for the white man's gain. I have a sneaking sympathy with these good people, because I like the African in his bush state best, and one can understand any truly human being horrified at the extinction of native races in the Polynesian, Melanesian, and American regions. 
but still their view is full of error as regards africa for one thing i am glad to say the african does not die off as do those weaker races under white control but increases and herein lies the impossibility of accepting this plan as within the sphere of practical politics most certainly in regard to all districts under white control for the bountiful earth does not amount to much in africa with native methods of agriculture it sufficed when a percentage of the population were shipped to america as slaves now it suffices only to help to keep the natives in their low state of culture a state that is only kept up even to its present level by trade the condition of the african native will be a very dreadful one if this trade is not maintained indeed i may say if it is not increased proportionately to the increase of wide government control for this governmental control does many things that are good in themselves and glorious on paper it prevents the export slave trade it suppresses human sacrifice it stops internecine war among the natives in short it does everything save suppress the terrible infant mortality why it does not do this i need not discuss to increase the native population without in itself doing anything to increase the means of supporting this population nay it even wants to decrease these by importing asiatics to do its work in making roads etc it may be said there is no fear of the trade which keeps the native disappearing from the west coast but it is well to remember that the stuff that this trade is dependent on the stuff brought into the trader's factory by the native is mainly indeed save for the southwest coast coffee and cacao we may say entirely bush stuff uncultivated merely collected and roughly prepared and it is so wastefully collected by the native that it cannot last indefinitely take rubber for example one of the main exports owing to the wasteful methods employed in its collection it gets stamped out of districts the trade in it starts on a bit of coast for some years so rich is the supply that it can be collected almost at the native's back door but owing to his cutting down the vine he clears it off and every year he has to go further and further afield for a load but his ability to go further than a certain point is prevented by the savage interior tribes not under white control and also on its paying him to go on these long journeys for the price at home takes little notice of his difficulties because of the more carefully collected supply of rubber sent into the home markets by south america and india therefore the native loses and when he has cleared the districts reachable by him the trade is finished there and he has no longer the wherewithal to buy those things which in the days of his prosperity he has acquired a taste for the oil rivers which send out the greatest quantity of trade on the west coast possessions subsist entirely on palm oil for it were anything to happen to the oil palms in the way of blight or were a cheap substitute to be found for palm oil at home the population of the oil rivers even at its present density would starve the development of trade is a necessary condition for the existence of the natives and the discovery of products in the forests that will be marketable in europe and the making of plantations whose products will help to take the place of those he so recklessly now destroys will give him a safer future than can any amount of abolitions of domestic slavery or institutions of trial by jury etc if white control advances and plantations are not made and trade with the interior is not expanded 
The condition of the West African will be a very wretched one, far worse than it was before the export slave trade was suppressed. In the more healthy districts the population will increase to a state of congestion and will starve. The coast region's malaria will always keep the black as well as the white population thinned down, but if deserted by the trader and left to the government official and the missionary, without any longer the incentive of trade to make the native exert himself, or the resulting comforts which assist him in resisting the climate, which the trade now enables him to procure, the coast native will sink, via vice and degradation, to extinction, and most likely have this process made all the more rapid and unpleasant for him by incursions of the wild tribes from the congested interior. I do not cite this as an immediate future for the West African, but a little more and how much it is, a little less and how far away. Remember, human beings are under the same rule as other creatures. If you destroy the things that prey on them, they are liable to overswarm the food-producing power of their locality. It may be said, this is not the case. Look at the Polynesians, the South American Indians, and so on. You may look at them as much as you choose, but what you see there will not enable you to judge the African. The African does not fade away like a flower before the white man, not in the least. Look at the increase of the native in the Cape Territory. Look at what he has stood on the west coast. Christopher Columbus visited him before he discovered the American Indians. Whaling captains and seamen of all sorts and nationalities have dropped in on him frequent and free. He has absorbed all sorts of doctrine from religious sects, cotton goods, patent medicines, foreign spirits, and, as the man who draws up the Lagos Annual Colonial Report poetically observes, twine, whiskey, wine, and woolen goods. Yet the West Coast African is here with us by the million, playing on his tom-tom, paddling his dugout canoe, living in his palm-leaf or mud-hut, ready and able to stand more white man stuff save for an occasional habit of going raving or melancholy mad when educated for the ministry and dying when he and more particularly she is shut up in the broiling hot corrugated iron schoolroom with too many clothes on and too much headwork to do he survives in a way which i think you will own is interesting and which commands my admiration and respect but there is nowadays a new factor in his relationship with the white races the factor of domestic control. I do not think the African will survive this and flourish if it is to be of the nature that the present white ideas aim to make it. But on the other hand, I do not believe that he will be called upon to try, for under the present conditions white control will not become very thorough, and in the event of an European war, governmental attention will be distracted from West Africa and the African will then do what he has done several times before, when the white eye has been off him for a decade or so. Sink back to his old level as he has in Congo, after the Jesuits tidied him up, and as he must have done after his intercourse with the Phoenicians and Egyptians. The travellers of a remote future will find him, I think, still with his tom-tom and his dug-out canoe, just as willing to sell as big curios, the debris of our importations to his ancestors at a high price. Exactly how much he will ask for a Devos patent paraffin oil tin, or a Morton's tin, I cannot imagine, but it will be something stiff, such as he asks nowadays for the Phoenician 
agri beads. There will be then, as there is now, and as there was in the past, individual Africans who will rise to a high level of culture, but that will be all for a very long period. To say that the African race will never advance beyond its present culture level is saying too much, in spite of the massive evidence supporting this view, but I am certain they will never advance above it in the line of European culture. The country he lives in is unfitted for it, and the nature of the man himself is all against it. The truth is the West Coast mind has got a great deal too much superstition about it, and too little of anything else. Our own methods of instruction have not been of any real help to the African, because what he wants teaching is how to work. Bishop Ingram would have been able to write a more cheerful and hopeful book than his Sierra Leone after one hundred years. If the Sierra Leoneans had had a thorough grounding in technical culture, suited to the requirements of their country, instead of the ruinous instruction they have been given, at the cost of millions of money and hundreds of good, if ill-advised, white men's lives. For it is possible for a West African native to be made by European culture into a very good sort of man, not the same sort of man that a white man is, but a man a white man can shake hands with and associate with without any loss of self-respect. It is by no means necessary, however, that the African should have any white culture at all to become a decent member of society at large. Quite the other way about, for the percentage of honorable and reliable men among the Bushmen is higher than among the educated men. I do not believe that the white race will ever drag the black up to their own particular summit in the mountain range of civilization. Both polygamy and slavery are, for diverse reasons, essential to the well-being of Africa, at any rate for those vast regions of it which are agricultural, and these two institutions will necessitate the African having a summit to himself. Only, alas, for the energetic reformer, the African is not keen on mountaineering in the civilization range. He prefers remaining down below and being comfortable. He is not conceited about this. He admires the higher culture very much, and the people who inconvenience themselves by going in for it. But do it himself, no. And if he is dragged up into the higher regions of a self-abnegatory religion, Six times in ten he falls back damaged, a morally maimed man, into his old swampy country fashion valley. End of chapter 21, part C. Trade and Labor in West Africa. Read by Kehinde of Bahatrak.com.